Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta. I play Penny on Sci-Fi's and the Magicians. And welcome to the Coffee Clatch Podcast. Get ready for a wild ride. The Coffee Clatch Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Magicians episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we're reviewing episode four, Be the Penny. Written by David Reed and directed by Shannon Coley, IMDb gave this a 9.2, going all the way up. The synopsis is, as Elliot is hunted, Quentin and Julia discover a powerful secret tied to the history of breakbills. So personally, I thought this was an amazing, very different episode I think it's a fun piece of information to share that Shannon Coley, who directed this episode, is the A-camera operator for The Magician Show. This is her directorial debut for The Magicians. She's directed some shorts in the past, including A Family of Ghosts and Hunting Season. But we heard Arjun talk about this in an interview he was on recently with another podcast, Physical Kids Weekly. And he was giving her a lot of credit for the amazing job that she did. I agree with you. I absolutely loved this episode. And it was very different from other episodes. But if you notice a lot of times, they love to mix it up mid-season. They switch it up, give you a musical episode, or change the anatomy of the episodes broken down. And they do that purposefully. Sarah Gamble and John McNamara actually talked about that. They said they sit down in a room and they look up at the board and they say, how do we do this different? It kind of reminded me of how Mr. Robot often does that in an episode midway through the season. They had their 80s, 90s spinoff in season two. And this season they had the one shot or the seemingly one shot episode. But this even was different than anything The Magicians has done before. And I know some people are talking about it because we don't typically get any episodes primarily from one character's perspective. Going into season one, you could have said Quentin is sort of our main character. He does some narration throughout the episodes. But we jump around a lot throughout all the characters, seeing what's going on with them. And normally, Penny is the one sort of separated from the rest of the group, and his storyline can become secondary. This time, he was the main point of perspective, and every other character shared those secondary storylines. And we're seeing it mostly through his eyes, which I thought was great. It allows us to see their essence a little bit more clearly, watching their reactions from his perspective, while also, of course, bringing some incredibly funny dark comedy to it. Penny served as one of your friends watching this show with you, which was pretty cool. You brought up Mr. Robot in that we love the fact that they break the fourth wall and we feel like we're a part of the story. and We're watching on not just from between a glass, we're actually part of it because he speaks to us. In this case, it's very similar in that it makes you feel that way. It almost felt like if you could imagine a little bit, if you were watching the show in a full VR and you can actually interact, they can't hear you, they can't see you, just like with Penny, but you can discuss the episode or you can discuss what's going on. Yeah, not only that... (laughs) Fans, book readers, if you go all the way back, characters within the story itself frequently talk about how they don't really know Penny that well. They have trouble getting into his mind and figuring out what's going on with him. I think the same thing goes on the TV show. Maybe it's just me. I always felt like I kind of got Penny the character a little bit more. 
And if I'm going to say one minor downside, some of the group's reactions to him felt a little over the top at times. I was like, really? You don't know him at all? You have no idea? Come on, guys. But it's true. And this did give us the chance to see things from Penny's point of view, maybe understand him a little bit better, connect to him a little bit better. And I was just wishing the group could have that experience too, bring him in on it. For sure. And our predictions of this episode with the fact that this would be a great comedic opportunity for Penny because just knowing his personality, I knew he would be hilarious bouncing off of the characters who can't see him or talk to him. Yeah, can you imagine most other characters in the show, if this was them, for instance, if it was Quentin, it would be very, very different. You know, it'd be great in its own way, but it wouldn't be funny like this. Also, this was such a good example. As a podcaster, sure, this episode was difficult really difficult trying to get down all the notes because so much was happening. But as a viewer, I've talked before about being a little bit frustrated with quick scenes that cut and jump. And sometimes I feel like in order to try to build tension or drama, this was not like that at all. I was really enjoying it, even though it was moving very quickly through a lot of different storylines, because each one of them did feel important. The action, the drama that was happening did feel real. I wanted to get each group and how they were responding to the Penny situation. And of course, I think I felt what they intended me to, which was this sense of frustration. I was going through it right along with Penny. I can't tell them anything. I can't talk to them. I can't change anything. I have to just watch as it all happens. So amazing job, Sierra Gamble, John McNamara, Shannon Coley. I think the IMDb score is well-deserved. Yeah, this for sure was one of my favorite episodes, considering the amount of plot that was given to us and the fact that we found the second key. And all within that, we, ha- we went on this fun ride with Penny. And all of our characters were still going through their own issues. I mean, if you think about it, Elliot had a pretty hard time this episode. All while still giving the narrative through Penny, which was great. And the thought of killing one of the main characters and pulling it off and still making us enjoy it and actually making Penny, at least in this episode means so much more after his death is pretty genius and pretty ballsy. I read this awesome interview on Collider.com where they interviewed Sarah Gamble, John McNamara, and David Reed. We're only going to give you little portions of this interview, but if you like what you hear, I would say definitely go to Collider.com and go in the search field and put in the magician's interview. The interviewer asks, so first off, you killed Penny. How did you guys come to that decision? And McNamara, of course, passes it to David Reed saying he was the one that pitched the idea. And this is cute. David Reed responds that he knows he has a reputation for being a little bloodthirsty, which is partially deserved. And in talking about what to do in season two with Penny, they didn't want to fix him right away. They didn't want it to be too easy. He said it just felt like with all the inventiveness we try to put into the show, having a demon come and suck out and eat his cancer while funny and gross and fitting with the tone, didn't feel quite satisfying. It didn't feel it was worth all the time we were putting setting up that story. So it was myself, Henry Alonso Myers, and Mike Moore, and two of the other writers, saying, well, what if we didn't? What if he was just dead? Then they asked, what's unique about Penny? He's a traveler. He can astral project. What if that was part of the cure? If the thing they tried to do required him to be out of his body, ooh, there's our term, (laughs) What if his body died, but he was stuck? And then instantly we saw the future, the possibilities that could spring from that. Here's a story for Penny that we can go with for the rest of the season. I mean, this is the biggest obstacle you could possibly have. He's half dead. Yeah, and a pretty ballsy move, right? Because if it doesn't work, 
you're kind of stuck with him as an OLB. But they really thought it out, and it seems like they had a plan, and they knew how to capitalize on Arjun Gupta's way of portraying Penny. Well, and it still is a little bit confusing, the mechanics of all of this and the way it's going to work moving forward. It brings up a lot of questions, but we're going to get into all of that as we talk about the episode. Let's start with our new faces and places. Despite all of the plot stuff going on, they actually also managed (laughs) to give us some new people. We were introduced to Hyman Cooper, a student from the 1920s nicknamed the pervert ghost of breakbills, because as a traveler, he practiced astral projection around the campus to places like women's bathrooms. He got separated once from his body, which must have died at some point, he surmises, because he never found it. So he's been stuck there forever, watching everything. What a pervert. (laughs) And he's still trying to do that, even throughout the episode. Penny has to keep refocusing him to help with the efforts. Yeah, it's pretty genius introducing this character, because as much fun as it is to see Penny react off of people... Uh, not being able to see him and how much how many jokes he can capitalize off of that. Eventually, we're going to want to see him interact with someone. And Hyman Cooper was just that person. Yeah, he needed a springboard. He also needed a way to get knowledge that he couldn't. We see him very early on trying to go and get a book from the library, trying to talk to other people. This was a way for him to learn what was going on and how he could try to fix it. We also got Lance Morrison, a McAllister whose mother was on the board of trustees, and he was a friend and secret love of Rupert Chatwin from the war. He went to break bills in the 1940s, but died after one semester due to a Code 7. And we have that in our Spells and Magic, which stands for Student Suicide or Magically Exploded. Mm. A lot of death when it comes to magic, huh? Yeah. So they're managing to loop back in the Chatwins, and it looks like they're going to become more and more prevalent yet again. Yeah, they were doing that from last episode, too, and I'm not sure where that's leading, but we know this is all very integral to learning about fillery, about magic, what's going to be important to this quest. And I thought it was really interesting getting some more inside perspective on Rupert because that was a chat when we didn't really know much about prior to this. We mostly heard about Martin and Jane. We also had this order man, and I don't think we got a name on him, but he works for the library. And he's the one that comes to fix the Penny situation and bring his soul back so that he can carry out his debt that he owes to the library. With this character, at first I thought, man, he's an asshole. But then I realized and I remembered that he's exactly what Penny was. Mm-hmm. He's doing exactly what Penny had to do for the library. But instead of trying to retrieve a book, he's trying to retrieve a soul. Exactly. And the way he's doing that leads us into... Creatures, I don't know, could just be a regular person, magical person, we're not really sure, but he talks about this corpse eater, someone that will come and eat the corpse of a dead body, allowing the spirit to pass on as long as it happens within seven days of the death. Well, I guess he's like a disgusting version of the Grim Reaper, because that's what the Reaper does. He takes your soul to the underworld. Yeah, it wasn't clear, though, if this was, I don't think this was the kind of creature that assisted with moving the soul, simply came to get rid of the physical body itself by eating it, reminded me a little of the demon from the last episode that would just come and eat your cancer. Mm -hmm. I surmise that it will bring, it will force Penny's soul back to the body where the library can take it. Yeah, they're going to do something to try to reel him in because they mentioned that tether that's present for seven days and they can use it to kind of yank him back. But it seems they didn't really get their hands on it 
by the end we see Penny does get rid of the body, but we don't know. Do they have tabs on his spirit now or is he free to kind of try to figure out how to get away with this? Some of the open questions I'm left with. Well, I think as a plot tool, they would definitely cling on to the fact that the library is still somewhere out there Mm -hmm. and they want him. That's another question, right? Where are they? We see that they've abandoned the Netherlands location, at least the ones that didn't get eaten Eaten. by cannibals. And, And I'm guessing the main librarian that we know of She didn't get eaten. Yeah, and they moved to some other place, and I'm sure we'll probably see that soon. We also get a new location, and that's the West Dorm, a break Bill's dorm where Lance was living, that we find out was haunted. So Dean Fogg had it buried and magically protected the entrance so that students couldn't find it. Pretty amazing there's still places at break Bill's that the students don't know about. And I don't know how much more we're going to get of break Bill's, sadly, but I hope Universal Studios right next to Harry Potter World, we'll do break bills. Oh, that would be amazing. And yeah, I don't think this is going to be the end. We might not see them for a little while while we go through this struggle for magic and stuff with the board. But I think when and if we resolve it, they'll come back into play. And I agree. I can't believe as big as this universe is, it's incredible they managed to keep expanding it. Places that we don't know about, secret Mm -hmm. things we have to find. That's half the fun of it, right? That's what I love about fantasy. The rules are flexible. But what I mean is Brick Bills was sold, so I don't know if they can get it back. Well, kind of. It sounds like the board just reclaimed it because they're pissed, because Dean Fogg isn't getting them the magic they want. If they recapture magic, things get up and running again, and they want a way to make money, and Dean Fogg is still out there. I don't know. I think it'll it'll resolve itself. We see that this is kind of an example, their version of the elite, right? With the McAllisters, Irene is this woman who has a reserve of magic and is wasting it on house enchantments to keep her house clean. There's a lot I have to say about the house, but we'll get to it. (laughs) Well, that was part of our spells and magic, our next category. They also talk about the translocation spells when Quentin is showing his magic, which is really Julia's magic. So Julia did that. I think so. Yeah. Quentin doesn't have any magic. We know she does. She's sitting next to him looking very intently. Sleight of hand. While he makes this bad proposition, we find out later, no, Irene really didn't buy it. I bought it. I was like, oh, that's a good trick. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and she excuses herself to the bathroom two minutes later. And so she can perform the key revealing spell, another piece of magic, which she uses to find the second key. That's right. We have the second key, people. So that's two down out of seven. The magicians had this great gif on Twitter, and it has all the keys, and then one's glowing, and then a second one starts glowing. So it's mm, like two down. I that's like that. Cool. Got me, got me uh, hyped. Yeah, we learn about the second key, which is the truth key. Quentin tells us the story about how the knight's daughter found it in a sentient cave that kept asking her riddles and wouldn't let her in until it deemed her answers worthy. The same cave was later found by Rupert Chatwin where he took the key and gave it to his friend Lance here on Earth. The key shows things how they truly are. It has the power to reveal things that are hidden. Pretty crazy. So we have a truth key after finding the illusion key. I'm wondering what the third one is. There's got to be some kind of thought behind that. I think there's going to be a great uh, reveal once we start seeing what keys are being unfolded. And I like that. And there's a lot to say about this key, but we'll definitely get into that later. 
Yeah, I just want to say, I know there's there's lots of theories. We've been tracking it ourselves. We're making a little chart of the keys, where they were found, by whom, who seems to be the person unlocking each one, which is a little bit tricky, what kind of magic it possesses. You had talked about last episode that you thought each might have its own specific brand of magic, and it seems that they do. You've also been saying for a while that you thought it would be a specific character each time that has to figure out how to unlock it and make yeah. it work. <clears throat> That's and that seems <laughs> to be unfolding right now. Yep, and that you thought they would go to specific doors and open certain things. So you seem to be pretty close with a lot of those predictions. All right, that was a lot. Let's jump into our plot, which opens up in the physical cottage. We're out of body. Penny stands watching over the group. We're hashtag OOB. <laughs> Uh, as Julia tells Katie, Penny is gone and Katie storms out. Penny tries to tell her she needs to cure him, but realizes that she can't see or hear him. This is our introduction to the frustration of OOB. Julia tells Q and the three of them then sit around saying nothing. Penny wonders why no one is crying. Why is nobody crying? I saved all your asses so many times. Appreciate me. Dean Fogg joins them and says someone should say some words, so Q struggles through a eulogy where he can't pronounce Penny's last name, Adiodi. He says Penny was complicated and probably hated him. Katie says none of them ever really knew him, including her, and that's how he wanted it. And not able to find the words, she downs a drink and walks out. I am so screwed. Okay, so at first I was like, why does no one care? It seems crazy. Mm-hmm. Q's first reaction when he's told by Julia, he starts laughing. But if you look at his eyes, he's crying. And that's just some people... You ever been at a funeral and there's this guy giggling and all that? Your body has this reaction and you're, you're either laughing or you're crying or you start acting like a child sometimes. I do that. I do stupid things like I'll tap my brother's like right shoulder and then go to his left during a funeral <laughs> just because like I can't deal with the emotions. So I think... He's just so overwhelmed, and it's kind of like... That I could understand, but see, I didn't get that from him. I didn't get that he was really struggling to process it. It was more like it was awkward for him. He didn't know what to say. He mm. still has this feeling Penny probably hated him. But I always felt, if amongst anybody, maybe other than Katie, that they did have a connection. It was weird. In the beginning, they did go at it a lot and kind of hated each other. But I thought they had come to a bit of an understanding and that Quentin would be a little more broken up about it. Yeah, I think they were pretty close comparatively. And we know that Penny was kind of aloof, right, as a character. But he did have bonds and he did help, like he said. He saved all their asses. Exactly. So let's break this down. There's a lot of emotion going on with these characters. They have a lot on their shoulders. And they are dealing with it in their own ways. When my father died, I dealt with it by going harder at work and on the podcast so that I could not dwell because dwelling felt too painful. But let's break it down. Alice, she lost her brother. She just killed her father and she died herself. Dean Fogg has seen these characters in particular die many times. If you remember season one, they kept rewinding the clock mm -hmm. every time they failed to kill the beast. Plus, probably the many other students who have died. I mean, you went over Lance Morrison, who died from magic. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure this dean has seen a lot of people mess up and do the wrong thing with their magic, right? Q's father is sick. 
And his love, Alice, was dead, right? Yeah, although now Q's father has gone into remission, which remind me to come back to that, brings up another question. Katie was a drug addict. She's had her issues, and she reacts very emotionally, just not external emotion. Katie is the one person I do see being impacted by it. That is very evident all episode long. We would anticipate that she was the closest to him. And I do agree that death and loss is very personal and there are so many other things going on. But for some of them, it didn't feel compensatory. It just felt like it wasn't even there to some level. And I think Penny was experiencing the same thing. He kept going around saying, what the F is happening? I am so screwed. Nobody cares. And he knew midway through he had to contact Katie and send her a message or there was no way he was getting out of this. And we're going to see each one of them one at a time and, and how they have that response. But first, returning to the Netherlands, Penny finds the library in a state of abandon and disrepair. He tries to pull out the remaining book on astral projection, but having no physical form can't pick it up. This is where we meet the cannibals. And outside by the fountain, we see Elliot, Frey, and Fenn, who having no magic are stuck there now. They look ragged, haven't eaten in days, and beg the two men for food. Not knowing what they are, they share their food, which turns out to be human flesh. This is the beginning of Penny wanting so desperately, and I would too, to warn them or to fix something. First up, Elliot, Frey, and Fen. Guys, these are cannibals. Don't sit down and eat with them. You're probably eating a human right now, and you can't do anything about it. Can you imagine that feeling? No, and this is exactly the kind of time very frequently throughout our story that Penny would have come in. We've seen him reading somebody's mind and figuring out something's happening with them and helping them or travel in somewhere to get somebody out of a situation. But over the course of the past season, he's become sort of increasingly helpless in these situations. He lost his hands. He couldn't figure out how to do his magic. Now he's lost his entire body. And so all he can really do is be an observer. And as you mentioned before, that's very much like us as watchers of this show Yeah. and just seeing it all unfold. It's kind of ironic that, especially in season one, all Penny wanted was to be left alone. Yeah. You know, Q, stop talking in my brain. You know, and he runs down and he's like, why are you so loud? Yeah, (laughs) he he went from that to being inextricably linked to every character, every storyline, every problem. And, And that's why I found it so hard to believe that these were the true reactions to him. And it's funny, we see his shock at that too. We go back to the physical cottage and Alice is wondering how you can never know you cared about someone so much until they're gone. And this is the first mistaken supposition. We have a few of those because for a second, Penny thinks she's talking about him. His face was priceless. He's like, yeah, there we go. All right. Someone loves me. (laughs) Until he realizes she means her dad. This is such a fun play. And I keep saying that. But it's true. He's hoping for people to to mourn them. You ever think about when I die, if I could see my own funeral, who yeah, would be what there? what are they going to say? Yeah. Well, <laughs> imagine they're just like, I didn't know him very well. I think he hated me. And actually, Arjun spoke to Variety about this episode. And they asked him, which character's reaction to learning about Penny's death was your favorite? This is interesting. He says, Margot's reaction is quite epic. Anytime that Penny and Margot get to interact is always fun. They're such dynamic characters together, and I think they're a really fun combo, but everyone's reaction is quite true to form. Quite true to form. What do you think he means by that? Well, I guess he is saying the opposite of me. He really thinks that it matches 
both the character and the relationship that they had together. But I mean, if you remember, even him and Alice kind of had a bit of a complicated relationship. There was some stuff going on there, very nearly ruined the whole Alice Quentin thing. But like you said, they're just very (laughs) focused on what's happening in their lives right now. Yeah, they have a lot going on. And I guess they did sit down, they mourned him, but I think gradually... Q was like, let me just check out this book, get my mind off of this. And then it kind of unfolded and it snowballs. You ever think about acting with someone who's not supposed to be there? You can't even acknowledge they're there. You have to look through them. You have to not hear them when they're speaking. No, that's, that's got to be, be pretty difficult. Crazy. Arjun was actually asked that same question. How is it acting as a character stuck in the astral plane opposite people who don't technically know you're there? Arjun said, it's so fun and definitely trippy. We had to shoot the scenes in a new way. Sometimes twice. Sometimes I'd be there and sometimes I wouldn't. And it presented a unique challenge that actually other people in the scenes had to deal with more than me. If I'm standing there, it's hard to pretend I'm not there. I was just going to say it had to be much harder for them even than him because his reactions are kind of real. He's talking to them. They're not looking at him. They're not acknowledging him. They're just continuing on with their conversations. For instance, here, Q is talking about his father how he saw him two weeks ago. And because his cancer was magical, without magic, he's gone into remission and seems to be healed. And this is the question I brought up before. Penny's cancer was also magic. They called it super magic cancer or something along those lines. And at the end of last season, you had put the question out there. You wondered if with magic gone in season three, that would mean Penny's magical cancer was gone. They open up And seem to answer that, no, it's not. In fact, it's getting worse. It winds up killing him. Why is it different from Quentin's father's magical cancer? Well, there's something about magic we still don't know. Thinking about the fact that creatures still have magic, fairies still have magic, I guess they're creatures. There's still magic in the world. It's a particular magic that's not there. And wherever this magic cancer derived from is probably not from a human then. Okay, so you think it's the cancer itself and not going back to Penny himself and kind of these comments we had earlier on about Penny being a magical creature or something other than a human who practices magic. Hmm. Yeah, I forgot about that scene. (laughs) I kind of, I didn't want to dwell on it too much because I didn't want to run in circles. I know, but it's another kind of clue piling up here now. Something is different about him. We'll have to ask our Arjun. (laughs) Well, also, on a macro level, Alice wonders if getting magic back is really a good idea. After all, look at the mess they've made with things. That's when Q remembers he has to tell Elliot about Penny. (laughs) Whoops. Yeah, Elliot and Margot don't even know that he died. So he sends a bunny. That's another thing where the writers were really able to just make this interesting because some of the characters know, some of them don't. Elliot has no idea. Margot has no idea. Not only that, we found out, because I forgot to bring this up, sorry. This isn't in order. We found out where the key took Elliot. You said probably the Netherlands, right? And I thought maybe it could be on the boat because it's illusion magic. Yeah, you had wondered, was he just hiding still on the boat? But why the Netherlands? I think because it's kind of like a central station for magic. And I know it's, it's a little harder to grasp on TV than it was in the books because they talked about it at length. But it does feel kind of like a massive train station where all roads, all worlds converge. It was laid out very much like a map, 
Confusing, super confusing. There were hundreds of fountains, and each fountain led to a different magical world. Now, there were other ways to get to those worlds, but they were more difficult and hidden. The number one way most people got there was by going through the fountains, and so you had to go through the Netherlands. This is what made it such a scary thought when we saw the world disintegrating that that could be the Netherlands. Because then what happens? Do your main front doors <laughs> to all mm. of these magical worlds just kind of close up? And I think with it malfunctioning, if you were trying to get somewhere, it'd probably be easy to just get spit out there, right? I like that answer. Sorry, we j- I just totally threw you off. So please. No, it's a good thing to, it's a good thing to <laughs> talk on. about. But I was going to say this was a, another great humor part because Penny follows the bunny to the muntjac. Falls onto the deck. I love the fact that Penny had no idea about the bunnies yet. So he's like, "Why? what the fuck is Q doing? Mm-hmm. Whispering yep. to a bunny. It's like, I got to check this out. And then he comes in and one of the many great lines he had, when did you get the cool boat? I miss all the cool shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he sees Tick telling Margot they could put into Broken Harbor instead. But Margot says if they sail anywhere other than White Spire, the fairy queen will stop them. So this problem continues. Tick finds the messenger bunny. Continues to be hilarious. Penny's dead. Sorry. Sorry. That was great. I love that. That's never going to get old. God, and Tick, was he not already? (laughs) Just terrible. (laughs) This is where we get the reaction from Margot to his death, where she says, I guess I always thought we were going to bang someday. Which leads to another funny line from Penny. And let's not forget Benedict. Saying I thought we were best friends. That was so random. And he's like, well. <laughs> Did he really? But that was so Margot. Like her reaction to it, <clears throat> she's got a lot going on as well. And she's very saddened by it. But that's a Margot type reaction, right? Yeah. And I, I kind of agreed. I mean, you know, he's got this great relationship going on with Katie. But I did always wonder if there would be a brief thing between them. Well, uh, you know, Margot and Elliot seem to have fun with many people. So mm-hmm. she probably thought, yeah, maybe one of these days I'll feel It'll it. Be Penny. Yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about his real relationship because in all seriousness, Katie is not dealing with this well. Back at the cottage, Penny sees her ransacking the room for drugs. And I think that's kind of where you see for the first time exactly how hard it's hitting her. And knowing that he can't do anything to help, Penny says his goodbye. Again, another helpless moment. He just has to watch her do that. That's got to be the hardest one. Yeah. Put yourself in his shoes. Imagine someone you truly love, family member, boyfriend or girlfriend, best friend, doing that to themselves. You're watching them. You're right there, but you can't say or do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Not only that, she would have been in real serious trouble. And again, I want to reiterate that Penny in the beginning would not want to deal with this, not his problem. But as we saw in season two, he's actually the one that would be there to help that would be there to stop Katie from doing that. And now he can't do that. Well, he really cares about her. And not only that, she would have been in real serious trouble. If not for in the other room, we see that Todd walks up to Julia. His eyes roll back in his head. He delivers another one of these messages. Help her now. You're the only one who can. He points towards Katie's door. We see this green light from overhead, just like when she got the message from the old woman. Yeah, you have to say that, but in the voice that they did. <laughs> I, I don't know that I can. So let's talk about this. Second time mm-hmm. we've seen this character, and it's only to Julia. First time was... 
The woman saying, you're missing the signs. I thought you'd be further along. We're going to have to push you. So that's something we really have to remember. And this time they're actually lending a hand. You got to get up. She's about to die. You have to help her. You're the only one who has magic. That's right. So that being said, who is that? Well, we made our guess. I don't, think I, I don't think I've changed my mind since then. Yeah. Persephone. Okay. But yeah, there's no one else, right? There can't be anyone else. I've heard some other speculation like we talked about on other podcasts, but I think uh, some of them have come to that idea as well, that, that this kind of falls the best in line. And it seems they don't just want her to follow the signs. They want her to follow her magic and to use it and figure out why she still has it. And she does here. She uses more magic than we even knew she had up until this point. Well, I guess that's kind of pushing her, right? They said, we're going to have to push you. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. And we see this often in shows and movies. Emotion will help get whatever magic is inside them, right? Absolutely. She's terrified. She rushes into the room. Katie's unconscious. She looks like she's dying. She's overdosed. And she uses some kind of spell to revive her. It almost looked like magic CPR. Yeah, overdosed on heroin. You know, up until that point, I forgot she was an ex-drug addict. I forgot. Yeah, because she really kind of turned that around at, at that one point, and we haven't seen any indications of it since then. So if you were asking if anyone cared that Penny died, well, they, there's your answer. No, she didn't have a speech for him. Instead, she downed the alcohol and bounced from that room. Yeah, I was, destruction. I was saying it, I do see it in her, for sure. I know that she is the most emotionally responsive to it, but I would have expected that because they had grown very close. It's a little weird they don't talk about it after that. The scene we get later, Julia just kind of says, like, oh, Katie's recovering in the infirmary. This is a major thing. Is somebody yeah. going to talk to her about, you know, how, how close she came, that she was clearly hit so hard by it? She does have a conversation with Alice later on, but I want to talk about that when we get there because that was a little weird. The end of this scene is where we're introduced to our new character, Another student that walks in and questions, Penny, you can see me? From the first words that Hyman says, he's enjoying this whole thing. It's like watching a movie for him. And I'm sure he's seen a lot of students come in and out since the 1920s. So maybe at this point, he's just numb to it, right? It's just a movie. It really is. He's not anticipating anyone will be able to see him, too. We find out his name is Hyman Cooper, a student that was nicknamed the pervert ghost of Breakbills. We talked about him losing his body and never finding it. He says, you know, you can't cast a locator spell without actual hands. And Penny explains to Hyman, they're not ghosts. You know you're not a ghost, right? Well, I'm not. You were on the astral plane when you died. So was I. Our minds were traveling. Now they have no place to go back to. Look, ghosts have some unresolved shit in this world, so they relive their death over and over. Are you doing that? People can see ghosts. Ghosts can touch things. I know, because I've been touched by a ghost time, and it wasn't great. We can't do that. And this begins the start of their conversation back and forth. What is it like to be whatever it is they are now? I love this scene because, one, it breaks down for us, the viewer, the difference between an OOB and a ghost. But also, it right away cuts it at the head, the question we were all inevitably going to have. Wait. If Penny can't touch that lamp, and when he jumped off the stairs, he couldn't tackle the person, how come he's sitting right now on that seat? 
Okay, Professor, then how come I can sit in a chair? Why, why am I not just falling forever? I don't know. I don't make the rules. Make your ass just knows. Look, didn't you, didn't you figure all this shit out? A hundred years ago when you died? Well, and that there will be a way to kind of do that if you learn, because we will have this amazing back and forth. And that same interview from Collider talked about how the creators hit upon introducing this other observer character of Hyman. They asked if they took any specific inspiration from Magician's fans. David Reed said it was basically needing a person for Penny to talk to. Yeah, the inspiration was asked because he starts shipping people. And that's where they brought up, like, are you getting inspirations from the fans with that? How does he feel about each one? Yeah. Well, he says it was more that if Penny was completely by himself, there would be certain segments of the episode that would still work, but it's more helpful for him to be able to swap theories and talk about his feelings with someone. The specifics of Hyman as a character was also the best foil for Penny. Who is the person who is similar to Penny in a couple tiny ways, but mostly very dissimilar, and will push his buttons in the same kind of way when they paired Penny and Quentin together. They are at right angles to each other and don't see the world in the same way. So having him there infuriates Penny, but it's also a way to add drama and a lot of jokes. And they accomplished that. He didn't feel like an extra character that didn't belong there. He fit into that puzzle piece very well, and he helped push Penny's story along. Yeah, the section you were talking about, where the two of them are watching Julia and Q, And Hyman just starts talking about his pairings as though he was watching his favorite soap on TV. He admits that Julia and Q are his favorite because they've been friends for years. There's a lot of sexual tension, but they never get together. He shipped Penny and Katie. Alice is okay, but a bit of a Mrs. Grundy. Josh is his idol because he's a magician. (laughs) That's a word that's going to live on forever. (laughs) That's going to be a t-shirt, I guarantee you. Yeah. But particularly, Quentin is the outsider, led into the inner sanctum of knowledge. I think it's important that we break down what vagician means. So vagician... No, no, no. Oh, okay, We're just going <laughs> to stick to the important <laughs> things. Particularly the fact that while they're watching this, Quentin is doing his narrating of the story of the second key we mentioned. In this cave that Rupert visited, which is the same from the first Fillory book, The World in the Walls. I like that they keep referring back to that. He found it while being chased by a belligerent cassowary. I love that it's a minor detail thrown in there. You could easily overlook it, but you could just picture this scene. If you don't know what a cassowary is, they're large, flightless birds. They look kind of like an ostrich that are native to New Guinea. But anyways, Rupert found a mountain of treasure and only took one key to bring back to his friend. And that's what links us to Lance later on. And also gives Q the idea that if the story is real, the key has to be here and they can find it. We're off on our next adventure. You know, we've said many times in the past that the hero was supposed to be Q, or we were led to believe that in the beginning of season one, and it more often than not is not Q, right? But it seems like with both of these keys, he's so essential in getting them that he almost, you could say, at least this season, that he kind of is the hero. Well, I think I'm going to have to respectfully disagree there. Yeah, that's been Q's struggle all along, and he kind of lays that out for us, that he realized at some point he's not. And really, there kind of is no hero of the story, that it is a different kind of story than the one in fairy tales. But I think the role he's kind of finding here in season three is the person that discovers the knowledge and kicks it off. He's a bit like a narrator. Well, he's really the narrator 
Yeah. You think about it. <laughs> he's the one with the book. He's the one that's reading it out loud. Yeah, you're right. And that's, so I was mistaking the that's narrator. That's where his, um, his solid contribution comes in, though, because he loved Fillory from a young age more than anyone ever could. He knows these books back in front. He knows right away that's from The World and the Walls, and Rupert mm-hmm. Chatwin found that. So that is essential to discovering the things that they need to find. And then you sort of have the next characters picking up from there. So Julia is the one with magic. She can uncover the secrets. Elliot kind of seems to be the one that keeps finding out what the keys are for. And I think that's making him look and maybe be a little bit of the hero here. He has to escape the danger and kind of go on these quests that have a little bit of peril. Yeah, you've changed my mind. (laughs) <laughs> You're right. I was mistaking the narrator, the starting point, mm. as the hero. Uh, basically, what I was trying to say is, like, he's the one that's figuring out what to do. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Ever since it's been Elliot, this time it was Julia. So he's... The, yeah, you're right. That's a, good, that's a good role for him, though. I kind of yeah, like that. I agree. Well, and as you said, that kind of leads us to the information, because the two of them go to Dean Fogg's office, of course, as Penny and Hyman follow, and they tell Dean Fogg about the seven keys from the story that they think will unlock magic and their theory on Rupert. Fogg tells them about Lance Morrison, how he went to break bills and gives them the student records so they can find more. Well, we were wondering when that whole encounter with the dean and that woman who is part of the board, right? We were wondering when that would come back into play. And it definitely does here. Because if we didn't see that scene, we'd be like, who's this woman? We'd have nothing to connect to it. They'd be like, why did they just pull this random Mm -hmm. person it seems less random because we are introduced to her They're related in episode one. Somehow, yeah. Next, we have the scene in the infirmary with the library man. He questions Katie about Penny's death and if it was tragic. That made me wonder, what if it was? You know, does something different happen? Is the process different? But he moves right on to the fact that Penny signed a contract guaranteeing his services in this life and beyond and explains the way this works with the tether to his body for seven days that can pull him back in. He also mentions he thinks it's likely Penny is in the process of becoming a vengeful spirit. Yeah, what does that mean? And so I suppose if you don't kind of go through this process the way you're supposed to, have your body disposed of somehow, here they want to use a corpse eater, and then allow your spirit to pass on to the next phase, whatever that means, we're not really sure yet. I know that for practicality purposes, once it does that, Penny would go to the library. But is there something that kind of happens? Because most normal people would then go to the underworld where we found Julia. The other thing is that sounds different from a ghost, too. They described a ghost before that they have unfinished business and they kind of hang around in this purgatory, reliving their experiences. But this feels like something that gets trapped and is solely bent upon vengeance and later we're going to see that kind of is what tips Alice off and she gets very almost personally defensive for Penny you know if anything we just can't let that happen I know what that's like to be transformed into something else and anything is better than that even the group mentions next at the physical cottage that while the ghost children at the plover house couldn't be saved Penny could because of this tether and they should do it but Katie's the only one who is wondering if there's a way to bring him back. She says Julia has some magic still, and she doesn't trust the library. Maybe there's something that they can do. So thinking she's the only person that can help, Penny tells Hyman he needs to talk to her. And this is where we start to get our ghost-like, and I mean ghost the movie, training for Penny. Remember last episode I said, pushing the pencil. I can't believe it. It was very reminiscent. It was crazy. (laughs) 
<laughs> you got some good predictions this season. And Hyman tells him when he first got stuck here, he tried to push things and that didn't work. But then he tried being the thing. So he instructs him to focus on a penny and tried to be it, pour himself into the shape and inhabit it. And after several failed attempts, Penny finally manages to go into the coin and move it. This makes him wonder why he shouldn't project himself into his own body. But Hyman says if you go back into your corpse, you'll just be dead. So another scary rule. Once the physical body passes, you got to keep the soul separate. Hmm. You can't try going back in there. You're just gone. It's really scary. But still, Penny thinks he needs something bigger, something that can talk. And Hyman warns him, controlling things with brains is much harder. Which makes sense, if you think about it. Yeah, and it also leads him to his next, you know, big idea. He goes into Todd's bedroom and finds the Margolem in the closet. Mm, Creepy, huh? (laughs) I forgot about that. Yeah, I kind of forgot that they had created this living clay figure of Margot. And Todd has apparently been keeping it stored in his closet. He says, I dress her up and pretend she respects me, which is hilarious. And Penny does manage to project into her, but he stumbles out in front of the others and is only able to groan and roll his eyes, which causes Quentin to freak out and start beating the golem with a stick. So many funny parts in this episode. That could have been scary and weird, and they managed to make it funny. We saw that in the preview, and I was like, wait, why is Margot there? And why does she have two eyes? And now it makes sense. They were so fast with that scene, you couldn't really break down what was going on. Man, Q kind of overreacted to that, though, huh? He just went well, at it. Well, it looked possessed, which essentially it was. It's just possessed by someone that we know is not a bad guy, Penny. <laughs> he should have, Penny should have practiced that a little bit before he just walked right out in front of everyone. Practiced it and maybe learned to just write so it could yes. come down and just start writing, I'm Penny, you know? Yes. But it wouldn't have been as epic as what happens in the end of this episode. Because let's not forget, it's about the keys. We also get the scene on the Munchak where Margot is wondering if Elliot will ever come back because the bunny she sent was returned and she's worried that he could be dead. You had mentioned a couple episodes ago that she has been becoming increasingly sort of anxious and on edge. She's alone in this, trying to figure out how to run the kingdom, go up against this fairy queen. And now Elliot just disappears. She doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, she's what Penny was last season. But still, within all that, she still has the funny comments. Elliot and Penny are probably dead and blowing each other in heaven. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And she still manages to draw on this reserve of strength that she has. She's done being pushed around. She wants to come up with a plan and finish it. Now when I get back, I'm going to fix this. Benedict, you're going to round up the guard's tick. You're going to go to that fairy repellent hallway and you're going to grind one of those bricks to dust. You gonna put it in the fairy queen's bath? And when that knocks her on her ass, I'm gonna cut out her heart and eat it in front of every goddamn fairy asshole in the kingdom. Damn, girl, you get shit done. Very epic speech, for sure. And with this scene, it was done so well. And on Twitter, Summer Bichelle wrote, Fun fact, the scene where I talk about cutting hearts out and eating them first played as a rage session. So remember, we were talking about she gets angry. So at first, she was acting it out angrily and probably screaming it. Mm. Then at Shannon Cohill, worked her directing magic on me, leading to this scene. So she probably said, that's a little too much. Let's go a little more Margot, a little more finesse and just badassery. 
It's great, though, because you can still feel the anger kind of bubbling underneath her words. And I wonder if this will happen. You have to think it's going to play out differently, but what's going to be the result if she goes after the fairy queen? Yeah, I, I mean, it's really good to think about, and it's like, hell yeah, let's do that. But let's not forget the fairy queen has her eye. She She's seeing knows. and hearing her saying that. Well, no, the eye, she doesn't have it. Oh, that's right. Thank I forgot. Goodness. But she told Margot, that's not the only way I can yeah, watch you. She, she's watching. So, I mean, and Margot knows that. I'm not sure what her plan is, but it's making me a little bit nervous <laughs> for her health and safety next time. I'm back in Dean Fogg's office, the group tells him they found Lance's records. They realize the key must still be here somewhere. And that's when Dean Fogg tells him that Lance was living in the West Storm, this building that was buried. With magic gone, they should be able to find the entrance, no problem. But in our little aside, Hyman tells Penny he's scared because ghosts can hurt them. And Penny realizes that means they can also see him. And he thinks now this is his next opportunity. And he follows as Quentin and Julia explore the West Storm until a door opens to reveal a room with the lights on that looks pristine where they find Lance Morrison sitting at the desk and try to question him about the key. Penny tries unsuccessfully to address Lance, too, and have him tell Quentin and Julia he is there, but that doesn't work, and they all watch as Rupert comes in and gives the key to Lance. So this is really cool. We're kind of seeing this repeating scene from the past, what does happen with ghosts. Rupert says he brought the key from Fillory, and it shows things as they truly are. Lance takes it, has a realization, and kisses Rupert. But then a man we realize is Lance's father comes in and chastises Lance, saying he sullied the McAllister name. He blasts Lance with magic, chokes him to death, and puts the key in his pocket. You know, one thing I noticed, and Penny noticed as well, a lot of people have father problems. Oh my goodness. He says, don't blame the key for your perversions. Well, back then, 1920s. Yeah. I'm assuming, right? Or Well, 1920s is the death of... It was somewhere around that time. Well, back then, being gay was a big deal. It was a problem. Lance is forced to go through this loop over and over again, which is... That's horrible. Horrible, yeah. His own father. Which is crazy. They say that ghosts stay there because they have unfinished business. But how can you finish business if you're going through the same loop? The yeah. same thing happens over and over again. And do you even know that that's happening? You know, you just keep yeah. kind of reacting the same way? And this kind of backfires in a way because... Q and Julia aren't able to really get anything out of that. Even when Penny <laughs> starts uh, forcing himself on the father, they just think, oh, we broke the cycle. We like broke the record. We got to get out of here. Yeah. When he's first talking to Lance, they think Lance is ignoring them. You know, they don't realize what's going on there. And then when the father sees him, they start to kind of attack each other. And Quentin and Julia think this is their opportunity to run, which is yeah. probably what I would do, too. Again, managed to make it a little funny. You know, tell him Penny's here. That's not a real name, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I like the fact that they're able to get Penny involved in a way that's more than just watching. Like, he's actually interfacing with something between the two worlds or the two parallels, right? Even though it doesn't work, it breaks that line for us as watchers, but also gives enough information for Q and Julia to push forward. Yeah, well, exactly right, because now they're trying to puzzle out what they just saw. They go back to Fogg's office. They're talking about the fact that Lance was a McAllister. They're one of the oldest magical families in America, so by process of deduction, Lance's father would have known how powerful that key was, and he would have kept it. 
and he has to be dead by now. So where is that key? Dean Fogg says, Irene, Lance's relative, has been calling every day looking for a lead on magic. If they give her something she really wants, they can get into her house and get access to it. And what she really wants is to find out how to get magic back. And I hear say that someone here still has magic. Mm -hmm. We have this brief scene in between, but it's one of your favorite people, Jason. Alice and Katie go to see Harriet, who warns them not to trust the library or the corpse eater. They should burn Penny's body. We get another comment from Alice here. She thinks that Penny could be stuck there for an eternity, turning into a ghost or worse. She keeps pushing this. Earlier, she said that it can take decades for a spirit to become malevolent, and that's why they should go with the corpse eater. And it got me thinking, where are these statements coming from? Yeah. You know, it didn't feel like it was because she had this great relationship with Penny. She cares about him. So I wondered, is this resenting a bit of what happened to her when she was turned into a Niffin. She doesn't want to see that happen again. Mm. Is it clouding her judgment? You know, it, it kind of keeps seeming to be only Katie who's saying, well, what, what's best for him? You know, what would Penny want in this situation? And Harriet says that anything's better than being a slave for a billion years to the people that killed him. And as it is now the seventh day, Penny is desperate for a plan. He needs to get the key to reveal himself to Katie, or he realizes, based on what's going on, he's going to be burned or handed to the library. This is when Hyman tells him that Elliot already found a key. So we see how this came to be. In the Netherlands, Elliot runs back to Fen and Frey, realizing that the men that fed them are cannibals, and they need to find a way out. So seeing there are keyholes in the library door, Elliot makes a plan to escape. He's going to use the key to make shadow bat illusion magic, scare the cannibals, and get to the door. But instead, the key produces an image of Elliot's father. Number two, daddy issues. Yes, and another funny scene. But we find out later that Elliot still managed to use him to get away. <laughs> Boy, did he ever. Hilarious. Also have some in-house family stuff going on because while this is happening, Frey is pressing Elliot for lying to her about the key. I kept thinking through all this. I thought Frey would be more powerful. She was trained by the fairies, right? Mm-hmm. But she's really just an onlooker at this point. And she seems to be totally dwelling on this relationship with her father that she doesn't care about. Earlier on, it's why isn't he fighting? I thought he would step up to the plate with these guys. And then you lied about the key. I thought we were taking it for taxes. It doesn't feel like her mind's focused on the mission the fairy queen gave her. It's more like she's trying to figure out this person that's supposed to be her parent. So I don't know that it could be a good thing, finding the human element of Frey, or maybe she is just after info about the key that's yet to be seen. Well, we have just a few more scenes left. First, Dean Fogg takes Quentin and Julia to Irene's house. We see those magical house enchantments, and Irene explains she has a reserve of energy that her father built up for decades, since a blackout happened when he was younger, and that scared him. You know, we had heard our magicians talking about the fact that they don't think Mayakovsky is the only one who saved up magical energy when yeah. he made his batteries. And I don't think she has just a little bit of it. I think if she feels comfortable to run the most mundane things all day long, like cleaning the house, she's pretty confident she has enough to last her a while. Making drinks, mm -hmm. everything. I mean, this house is as if magic never left. Either that or she's an idiot, and it doesn't seem like she is. So, you know, how much more of it is out there? How many people have done this? 
And really, how many good things could we be putting that to use for? It's very frustrating. And this is where Quentin puts on his little performance that we find out later doesn't convince anyone. And Julia goes and performs that spell, lighting the piece of paper on fire to reveal where the key is. She brings the fire to the library where Penny wills her to find it before the sun sets. But he leaves before seeing that she discovers it inside of a box. Was this Julia's magic of her own that we see is stronger than we realized? Or was it the magical current flowing through Irene's house? Yeah, I was wondering that. I was thinking, oh, does she have more magic right now because she can pull off of this current? Mm -hmm. But remembering that she just saved Katie's life with magic, I think it's just that her magic is growing stronger. She's just finding it. Pushing herself. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. And I think that's more interesting if you ask me. Absolutely. And also kind of the question of the day, what are those fairies doing that are watching on behind her? And we had a few Clatchers comment on that. Afrobidden Faith wrote, so I don't think her father stores magic. Maybe he fairy napped some fairies and tethered them to the house. That would mean endless amount, wouldn't Mm -hmm. it? Well, I guess if you can tap into it like that. Yeah. And Melly wrote back, interesting theory. I'm guessing it would take very powerful magic to kidnap those witty fairies. Maybe SCKC Podcast have some ideas. And then Forbidden wrote back, or maybe they lost a deal. You know how the queen is all about deals. Laugh my ass off. That's true. I like that theory. I have a few more. When you look at them, they kind of looked different from the fairies that we've been seeing. The fairies that we've been seeing looked more in control, more devious. These looked... A little subservient? Yeah, more like a house elf, Mm. if I may. Mm Mm-hmm. So one of my theories, and I know this might be just a little loose here, is that magic, even from the wellspring, is produced by fairies. You just don't see them. So all that magic that we do as a magician, you learn how to use it. You're still utilizing the fairies that are around you. So maybe they have been all this time without us knowing as humans, as human magicians. They're the slaves, for lack of a better word, to our magic. Yeah, well, we said it felt like they had a reason they were trying to bring it back and overseeing this, even though it didn't seem they needed it for their own purposes. It was still important to them, and that's why they're so involved in human affairs. And when we wondered what all these spells were that they were doing, other people said maybe the fairy realm's broken. I think you even brought up what if they're trying to repair the wellspring right? using all of those spells. Yeah, but this particular theory that I'm saying right now would be the opposite. They don't want it back. Because if they're slaves to the magic. Well, not slaves to the magic. I think the way I see it is kind of, they still need the wellspring. Everybody does. And with your theory, maybe part of their job is to keep it running, to keep it operational. But it's sort of like how we said earlier with the gods where they need humans to come in and intervene and help with their problems. It seems like the fairies do as well. So I was wondering, did the queen send these two there to watch this mission the same way she's watching Margot on her part of the mission. Julia is the one who's kind of finding magic on the earth side and found this key. Maybe they're keeping tabs on her too. Well, I thought that at first, but the way those fairies looked was different. A little more subservient. Yeah, well, if they were just sent out by the queen, they're kind of underlings. Yeah, it read different to me. And also the fact that Penny saw them as light beams, which PJ Feeney pointed out to us on Twitter. I think there's more to it because she saw them, well, she didn't. We saw them when the truth key was in her hand. 
and we keep asking, what's the truth about these fairies? So your theory is that the fairies need it because it's part of the whole ecosystem for them, and they are catalysts to that magic. It's part of their job that they love. Yeah, I don't know if they love it, but they're, like you said, dependent on it, kind of like other people are, and uh, not for their own magic necessarily, but to keep the whole place up and functional. And as much as they hate it for that, it's always been a rule that Fillory needs humans, right? And uh, even with Ember and Ember gone, it kind of seems like that's still a thing. So she wants to grudgingly make that work. If that's going to still be in play, she wants to make the best human rulers and fix the wellspring and, you know, why not? I guess we have no fucking clue. That's what we're saying. (laughs) Well, I don't think anybody does right now. That's why it's so fun to speculate on. Send in your fairy theories. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, they're all interesting. If it's, it would make more sense why the fairy queen is such a bitch. If it's the fact that they are kind of slaves to it. Maybe it's nothing to do with magic. Maybe they are slaves to that woman's house. And it has nothing to do with magic. The whole theory, the overall overarching theory that we're going Some people into. have said that, slaves to Irene's house, but... It's not as interesting. And I, I find that a little hard. The fairies yeah. are very powerful. And how did this woman manage to do that? And does nobody else know? I, I don't know. It's possible. Well, when you say you try to trap the magic and save it, is that euphemism for track? Trap a fairy. Trap a fairy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe her father was super powerful. He's Let's, the one that did it. Let's think about what fairies mean in other storylines. Peter Pan, the only people with magic or the only things with magic is the fairies. They could fly if they get fairy dust. They have to use stuff from the fairies in order to have magic. That coincides with needing the fairies. The thing is, for me, I guess what I'm kind of grading against is you're putting them at the top of the food chain for magical creatures. There's a lot of other magical creatures within these worlds. And we see that with magic on, they all still operate on that. They're all still inherently magical. Not top of the food chain, but something that is a catalyst for our magic. Not top of the food chain, because they're more like slaves then, the way, at least the way we saw them in the house. Well, you can still be high up. We saw Ember and Umber were gods of this world. Yeah. They created it, and yet they were still inextricably bound to it. You could say slaves to it, in a way. All right. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I don't think we're going to come up with a a good answer for that. Melly. I hope that was good enough for you. That's the best we have, and maybe we're right. Maybe we're wrong. That's the beauty of this show. Let's move on to the scene where Katie gets ready to burn Penny's body, wishing he was there to tell them what he wanted. Alice admits she barely knew Penny, but knows what it's like to be trapped and totally lose control of yourself. I don't know where he was from. I don't know about his family. I don't know. I don't know how he found magic. But I know what it's like to be trapped and to totally lose control of yourself in your life. But in the underworld, he still gets to be Penny. She wants to relieve Katie of the burden of responsibility. But Penny, not wanting to go to the underworld, wills himself to be the candle, knocking the flame over and lighting his corpse on fire. See, this is what I don't don't understand. Alice is saying, at least in the underworld, he still gets to be Penny. But if you have the corpse eater come, he's not going to the underworld. No, he's going to the library. Yeah, so what is she talking about? And she keeps saying that about the underworld. I don't know. 
It's very weird. There must be something we missed. Or, look, I don't trust Alice at this point. That's what I'm Let's saying. Let's be honest. It's <laughs> not about that. She's got her own line of thinking going on yeah. here, and it's not adding and up. It's not conducive to what our crew is going through and what their goals are. That's very evident. And it was scary, though, because Katie is so weak at this point, and Alice really is the only one to pull her aside and try to talk to her. She might have listened to her, if not for Penny saying, I got to take this into my own hands mm. here. This is my fate for the rest of eternity, you know? And uh, good on him that he was able to, to get into that candle. It was a pretty epic moment. And we go to our final scene where Julia tells Quentin that holding the key was uncomfortable, like she wasn't really herself. What do you think that means? It's supposed to reveal the truth about somebody, and yet her yeah. it made her have this weird feeling about herself? Well, I, I can tell you, Based off of the way I grew up and, you know, you watch TV, you see magazines, like you learn what is supposed to be cool and what's supposed to be accepted in life. And we all put on a facade in life. When we're at work, we're a little bit different. When we're with our friends, we're a little bit different. Family, a little bit different, right? Church, a little bit different. So we all put on this facade to let the world see what we think they want us to see Mm -hmm. or want them to see. And then when you do that long enough you're kind of lying to yourself who you are, right? And you think that's what Julia has been doing? I think she's getting uncomfortable because she holds it and she can't hide from the real person she is or or from the reality of what's going on in her life. Look, she's been touched by God in a bad way. Yeah, we know she hasn't there's, really wanted to think about that. There's someone or Persephone or someone uh, who's engulfed in her life. That means there's something about Julia we don't know yet. There's something that makes her a big deal that we have yet to figure out. And holding the key of truth would be showing it to her, even if it's not visually. And I think it makes her uncomfortable. I think part of that has got to be her power because we do see she's not really coming to terms very well with the fact that she has this magic. She probably has a lot more than she's letting herself know. We see that progressing in this episode. And whoever this is that's following her, kind of wanting her to step up to that, and she's not. And it makes me think about Alice... And how long she denied her real power would never let herself experience that. And the moment she had with Quentin where she finally let it go and that tree grew. And I think there was a lot of things like that going on with Alice prior to her turning into a Niffin. And that's part of what made that experience so difficult. She would never let herself realize that. And then as a Niffin, that was everything. She had all the power in the world and couldn't control it. And so now later she's stuck in this very weird place where she doesn't know how to reconcile those things. So I wonder if there's a little bit of a parallel storyline happening here with Julia and where that's going to go next as she starts to discover her own magic. Also importantly, Quentin says he checked the book and it unlocked chapter three. So now we're going to get the next key, which might be in Fillory. Dean Fogg comes in drinking from a flask tells them about how their show didn't convince Irene and the board of directors put break bills up for sale. So he's out of a job and they're evicted. No more physical cottage for a while. Mm. We're going to need a new headquarters. At this point, it seems like Dean Fogg has given up. Mm-hmm. And that's when all of a sudden, Elliot comes running in the front door with Fen and Frey and tells them they were chased by cannibals, used the illusion key, fed his illusion father to the cannibals, <laughs> and got away. That's hilarious. My first thoughts were, I thought Elliot could never leave Fillory. Mm-hmm. 
and you can get away with him being in the Netherlands, right? I was like, all right, well, you know, he's still kind of out there maybe. And the other ways he managed to get around those loopholes. Yeah, I don't know. Is it just with everything that's going on right now, nobody's keeping track? There's no more Ember and Umber. Yeah, I wonder. Magic's dying. But now he has two characters that only know Fillory. This is going to be... They're so out of place immediately. It's hysterical. And if he lets them loose in the city or in the world, the real world, what the hell is going to happen to them? They're going to be so overwhelmed. And Fen is only just starting to get back to herself a little bit. I don't think he's letting Frey very far out of his sight, though. So Quentin and Julia show Elliot that they found a truth key. He picks it up and once holding it can see Penny. But that's where our episode ends. Oh my God, brilliant ending. And a lot of the interviews it was discussed of about this ending and, and how awesome it was. It was definitely done on purpose. It was a cliffhanger, but not one that pisses you off. It was actually perfect. It gave you just enough to go, what? Mm-hmm. And then mid-sentence, gone. And it's so like Elliot to just walk in and be like, oh, hey, what's up, Penny? Well, first, he doesn't know Penny's dead. Remember? I know. He doesn't know. And he's like, he's not working. Oh, hey, Penny. He just God. figures that's he's sitting there, you know? Perfect way to end the episode. Yet again, it's Elliot. Yeah. That actually manages the reveal, the thing to the key, whatever the magic is, he's the one that does it. Yeah, and he doesn't feel uncomfortable when he holds that key. And I think it's because Elliot never shied away from himself and who he really is. That was never his issue. Oh, well, he did for the longest time, but that he had a huge turnaround. I mean, we talked about that, right? You know, season one, break bills, Elliot. Yeah. All he was doing was running and hiding this country farm life we found out about that he was young, that he ran away from and tried oh, to true. Yeah. adopt this new persona. But really all he was doing was hiding and numbing out and getting drunk and trying not to face himself. But once he came to Fillory and became a king... He stepped up and he addressed all of those things. And yes, I think now, out of everyone, he's one of the most comfortable, even if there's still things that he has to deal with. Now he's able to just look at them and deal with them like he did with his father in the illusion magic. Yeah, I guess I was so enamored with the Elliot we know now that I forgot. He's so changed. That's twice you made me feel dumb. This episode. No, (laughs) it's a great point to bring up because you do kind of forget. Yeah you know, how different things were. And I think he's one of those biggest examples of somebody who's stepped into that role. Yeah. And he actually felt very confident when he was holding that key. He was like, "Mm, (laughs) no, nothing's happening. Him him and Margot, I would say. Yeah. We we didn't expect them, right, to be the two. And that's why they are king and high king and high queen, right? Right. They didn't really believe in Fillory. And it was always Quentin and all his nonsense about these books and king and queen. But um, it's it's like it was meant to be them. For sure. You know, and Quentin had a really hard time coming to grips with that. But the Quentin and Julia show seems to belong mostly here on Earth. So I'm excited to see once the rest of the group finds out next episode. Me too. What's going on through Elliot. And very clever of Penny to pick up on the fact that he's the hidden thing. And that key would help result mm-hmm. in them finding him. Hey, by the way, where's Josh? That's a good question. I don't know. We haven't seen him in a little while. No, but we will see him because we know one of the episodes. He's in the title. All about Josh? Yeah. I'm starting to think that Josh is your favorite character. Is oh, I told you a while ago, he, he is one of my yeah. favorites. You love sweets. 
he was a little more prominent in the books than I think that I oh, okay. kind of have a, a liking for him based on that. But Penny was always my favorite. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, I'm sorry that got so long, but there were so many things yeah. happening in Be the Penny. Let's move on to our rating for this episode. On a scale of one to ten keys, Jason, what do you give episode four? Episode four deserves 9.4 keys. I really, really enjoyed this episode. Filled with so much adventure, so much humor, and my kind of humor. We found a key. Elliot's back in town. And you know what? They managed to make it a key episode where I did not even see it happening until they found that key. I mean, honestly, I did not see this episode being one of those episodes. Yeah, well, I guess if we're going to have to find seven and we think the whole adventure is going to happen in this season, that is going to move pretty quickly from one to the next, which is great. I like that we keep the adventures going. Yeah. I'm very curious to see what the other keys are going to be and who's going to find them. I know. So now that we're thinking each one's connected to a different kind of magic and leads us to something new, do you have any thoughts on the other sorts of magic we might see? Well, they're connected to characters, so who would find... (laughs) So this episode is about Julia, and we need to find the truth Mm -hmm. about Julia and what's going on. I wouldn't even... This would be a half-hour conversation for us to break that down. Well, just pick maybe one that you can think of, a character, what kind of journey they're on, and what kind of magic that might mean. Well, Elliot already got one. Julia got one. Maybe it's Margot. She was my next guest. Yeah, really? Yeah. Jeez, we're always on board. With well, just because her path is probably the next clearest with yeah. what she's dealing with, with the fairies. And I think it's going to have something to do with strength. Yes, I believe you're right. Uh, maybe some kind of battle magic or way that she could be stronger to go up against the fairy queen. Yeah. But that, that feels like a later stage one. I think we'll get a different character next for something not as big end game. Yeah. Well, Jason, I am giving this a 9.5 keys. Nice. My highest rating so far. I loved this episode, loved everything they were trying to do with it. I don't mean to stir up any trouble, but if anyone's listening, let Shannon Coley direct some more episodes. Yeah, for sure. She was awesome. And that takes us to our MVM, Most Valuable Magician. Like every week, we ask our Clatchers on Twitter via at CKC Podcast, who is your MVM, Most Valuable Magician? And this time we gave you four options. Penny, Julia, Hyman Cooper, and Dean Fogg. In fourth place, we have Dean Fogg with 5%. We presented Dean Fogg as an option because he was the one that was able to coordinate a meeting with the McAllister family and essentially help get the key unknowingly. Yeah, he gave them the records on Lance. He told them about the West Dorm. Yeah, that's right. That too, yeah. He bought right into the story of the Seven Keys. This is how I can help. You know, ultimately, he's foiled and a little depressed by the end, but this is his life. Break bills to be expected, right? Yeah, and sadly, Dean Fogg has never gotten MVM from us. I know. Uh, Sorry, man. Maybe next time. Yeah. And at third place, with 17%, is Hyman Cooper. I mean, as stated in the interview, he was just the perfect foil for Penny, gave him somebody to bounce off of. Not only did he bring humor to our situations, but he taught Penny things. He was a little bit of a a guru on how he could use his OOB to try to communicate with the outside world. Yeah, not to mention, it's not always about what they were able to 
accomplish that episode. It's also like just someone you loved. They were so awesome in that episode. And he was yeah, pretty makes, funny. He makes was great. Both. Yeah. He made a lasting impression just in that one episode alone and guaranteed we're going to have more of him. Coming in second was Julia with 22%. Well, that's pretty obvious. She found the key for us. Using her magic, she also saved Katie. She was a major catalyst in this episode. Absolutely. And coming in at first place with 56%, I'm surprised it was that low, Penny. I mean, need we list all of the reasons the episode was be the Penny, the constant humor, the first person perspective, the observation of character towards everyone else. And he was also our MVM of last season. I said it on Twitter. The struggle was real for him. Not only is he dealing with trying to come to terms with the fact that nobody cares that he died. They can't even pronounce his last name right. They can't cobble together three words for a eulogy. (laughs) Nobody's interested in saving him other than Katie. But he only has seven days to try all of these things so that he won't wind up with a corpse eater and getting stuck in the library for all of eternity and... We still don't even know how successful that all was, but for all of your efforts, you did a good job, Penny. So with that being said, Christina, who is your MVM? I'm going to let you go first this time. Well, I'm going to surprise you. Ah, me too. I'm going to give you a different MVM. Me too. Who's yours? You kind of ruined it. It's Arjun (laughs) for me. I just wanted to... Oh, okay. I was trying to do a a trick for you, and you're like, oh, me too. I got excited. No, Arjun, for sure. Come on. Oh, great. Good. Mine's not. Uh, yeah, I, I devised that from the... I, I'm sorry, Arjun. <laughs> <laughs> I, here's the thing. I want to save my penny. Because even though this is the penny episode, I have a feeling there's going to be more epic penny things to come. And I don't often give it to this person. So I'm giving it to Julia. Yeah, I could see that. Okay. Um, sh- I don't think I give her enough credit. And sometimes she doesn't deserve it. But here... As you said, she managed to do a lot this episode. And mainly for that moment where she was holding the key, I think she's coming to the realization herself as well that there's more going on and maybe she hasn't totally acknowledged it and she's going to need to do so. I think this journey is becoming interesting with her and I haven't felt that way about Julia in a while. So that's good to see. I like that. And from our poll, we also had some comments. At PJ Feeney wrote, This was one of the more balanced episodes for MVM. You can make an argument for Penny, who's hilarious. Julia, who saves Katie and finds the key. Quentin, who discovers where to go for the next key and provides the distractions. And Hyman, who teaches Penny how to move items. Yeah, agreed, man. Or a strong case for Elliot, who saves his family with illusion magic and casually lets the entire group know Penny is still around and Margot for the cunning plan. Yeah, I mean, part of me really wanted to give it to Elliot for those reasons, but I've been giving it to Elliot a lot. Mm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the love was spread around this time, for sure. And Melly wrote, Julia keeps a cool head. She saves Katie. She's proactive in the key quest and manages to find the key. Although, wasn't it a bit too easy to find? That woman must have noticed Q isn't the one with the magic. Yeah, I think she did. And we learned that at the end when she says the board didn't buy it. I wondered, too, about her finding the key so easily, but I think they were trying to show that she did have to use some complicated magic on that spell that she did with the piece of paper, and that's what revealed it to her. Without that, maybe it would have been impossible to find. And so, yeah, Julia kind of stepping up to her magic a bit more. Now, will she be tipped off to that? If the fairies are there 
kind of enslaved to Irene, they might tell her this might come to something. And finally, on to Clatcher's comments. We've gone over a lot of them, but we have one left by PJ Feeney. The long overdue penny-centric episode reaffirmed why we all love Arjun Gupta. Moreover, the irony of an episode all about Penny where no one could see him was so great and in line with how generally ignored Penny has been throughout the show's history. Amen. We agree with all that. (laughs) And remember, if you want to be part of this poll, it's free, it's fun. Just sign up on Twitter if you don't have it already and find at CKC Podcast. Follow us there and you'll see us for every poll we ever put up. And while we're talking about our Clatchers, I just want to give a quick shout out to Sir Apricot and Hill7322 for giving us awesome reviews on iTunes podcast. Keep those coming. We love those. And remember, if we reach 100, we're going to have another drawing for free CKC gear. Yeah. Where are we at now? I think it's 40. Yeah. Get those numbers up, guys. We only have nine more episodes to do it. And speaking of free gear, I want to thank Hazel for becoming the newest Patreon member. Thank you for joining the CKC crew. You have bonus episodes waiting for you, well over 24 hours worth. And we will be doing a drawing for this month pretty soon for the new Clatcher members for some free CKC gear. And as always, every month, if you're a Patreon member, you get in another drawing. And Hazel, you'll be in next month because you just joined for February. And if you haven't joined yet and you really like what we're doing, check out our website, coffeeclatchcrew.com. You'll see all the other podcasts we do, and you'll see links to our Patreon page, where we give you bonus content every month, where we go over news, things about other shows, a lot of fun things I think you'll really enjoy. And if you, depending on what tier you go on, you'll get free movie podcasts and so much more. For the details on that, check out those pages, and it might be something you're interested in. And try it for a month. And remember, you're there for a month. You get access to that month's drawing for free CKC gear. And real quick, we haven't brought this up in a while. On that same website, coffeeclatchcrew.com. So there's three ways to help. One, we already discussed, joining the Patreon podcast. Two, you can donate to us. There's a donate button via PayPal. That's a one-time donation in any amount you want to give. It could be as little as a dollar, but every little bit helps. And three is the Amazon link. You may have heard us talk about this before, but for any Amazon shopping that you're going to do, instead of going right to their site... You come to Coffee Clatch Crew first and click on the Amazon link. That's just one extra click you have to do. Then it'll take you to your regular shopping. Nothing else changes. It just lets Amazon know that you came from us and gives us a small kickback. So that's a really easy way that you can support. And you only have to do it once. You can save the link, bookmark it, and anytime it'll automatically go back to that. So while you're thinking about it, while we're talking about it, go right now. It takes two seconds. And lastly, if you want to buy something and you want something to hold in your hand and to wear, we have a lot of great designs that we made on our gear store. Same website, coffeeclatchcrew.com. We have hats, shirts, sweaters, really cool designs from your favorite shows and even Clatcher gear. It's good to take a look at the items because if you're being entered into those drawings as Patreon members, that's what you can choose from if you should win. So get your eyes on what you want. That wraps up episode four, except for our preview. If you're afraid of spoilers, we will see you next time when we review episode five, A Life in the Day. For everyone still here, we got a brief synopsis on episode five that says Julia helps Alice navigate a personal crisis. Quentin and Elliot go on an adventure. We're getting Quentin and Elliot together. That is so exciting. 
and Julia and Alice. This is what I was talking about when I went forward for the rest of the season and looked at the future episode titles and their little descriptors. We had some odd people coming together each episode you wouldn't expect. I wonder what's going to make them come together and how that's going to play. I think the dynamics are going to be really interesting. Absolutely. They always talk about doing something different. That's one way to do it different. I don't see them working that well together. It's because you have no imagination. (laughs) (laughs) You think this is going to go well? Well, I hope so. And what do you think the personal crisis is going to be? Is it going to be Julia and trying to figure out what's going on with her magic and the signs she's getting? It may be. Oh, reading it this way, it seems like it's Alice that's having the personal crisis. Another creature after Uh her? Uh-oh. We know she has demons in there that we don't know what's going on, so it might even be her crisis with being with the group or doing what she needs to do Mm -hmm. by herself. Yeah. Which she's been in this whole time, but it might come to a head. Who knows? We were just saying there's parallels there between them and the, the kind of struggles they've been having. So maybe they find a shared bond over that. So that wraps up this episode. Patreon members, if you haven't seen already, we just released our Jumanji movie review. And this month we'll be doing Maze Runner. This is going to be another epic adventure for us. That's the Death Cure Part 3. So keep the magic in your heart. Keep the fantasy in your soul. And until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me! Please hang up and try again.